You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented Young Guns. Watching it with me is Jan Bilton from The Sound of Football. Hi Jan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much for having me. No, it's my pleasure, and um, again, this is one that we've um, been sort of plotting for a little while. It's nice to finally get down and, and get it sorted. Uh, now, Young Guns was one of the films that you uh, specifically asked for. What's so popular about it for you? Well, I, I think it's one of those 80s films that just really stands out for me because... Um, I think I was about, it was about 80, was it 88 this came out? Yeah. So yeah. I was um, I was about 13. And I suppose as a 13-year-old, this film covers all of the major food groups, doesn't it? Because <laughs> it, it's full of, you know, really cool superstars in it. It's got massive amounts of violence in it. And it's just full of loads of wisecracks and, and great scenes. So, uh, yeah, I, I, actually, the, the, the Western genre isn't something I'm really into. I, I don't really like them at all, but this seems to have been something that grabbed hold of a, uh, of a teenage Yan and, uh, and kept hold of them. I, I kind of moved away from it um, over the years, and I always think, I mean, when, when you suggested doing this, I, uh, I always think you shouldn't ever go back. It's, it's better in the memory. So having watched this for the first time in decades uh, a few weeks ago, um, I was actually quite surprised how much I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I watched it last night, and again, it's probably the first time in about 20 years I'd seen it. Yeah. And it was amazing to think that, you know, in my head, having seen it as certainly a younger person anyway, you yeah. know, you, you do think of it as a Western. Uh, obviously, the setting is certainly 1880s and, and so on. But so much of it, and maybe it's partly the cast and partly the way it's filmed, it seems like it could have been an 80s action film it just happened to be set in that era and I think for me that was kind of what made me enjoy it a little bit more was it was made in the 80s almost as an 80s film yeah. so in the last few years I've, I've tried to bone up on westerns a little bit I mean my, my dad always used to love them and I you know he was one of these always said oh you know when, when you get to my age you'll be talking about bloody Star Wars all the time and he wasn't yeah. wrong but um, <laughs> but coming back to this, it was it was weird, you know, having watched all the you know the spaghetti westerns and half the ones with John Wayne and Gary Cooper and and all that. But this one was so brash. I think it's probably the the best way to put it. Yeah, I, I think I think that I, I get what you're saying about it. It could be a, a, an 80s action film because one, the soundtrack is is completely 80s in fact it, it borders on just kind of crazy and <laughs> inappropriate at times and you know, some really bad choices of music I think which uh, I suppose because I've watched it a few times in preparation for this it does kind of take the, the shine off a little bit when you've got some kind of long flowing guitar solos going on um, which is just you know don't sit in a western but yeah I mean if you think about the time it was made you know um, political and corporate corruption was a was a was a was a thing that was just kind of coming into the into the, the kind of zeitgeist people were getting used to this type of thing actually going on even though it had been going on forever uh, and this film you know it's, it's front and centre really about uh, corruption and, and someone trying to dominate a marketplace if you like uh, and, and, and in a very murderous way to that While you know these guys these, these young guns were the six youngish guys who are taken in by a, a kinder older English gent who's uh, Terence Stamp it was always nice mm. to see in a film. Now, this is something I, when I was doing my sort of reading up about it, and when I say reading, it was kind of Wikipedia and IMDb, yeah. and that apparently, because most of these guys were actually real people. Um, yeah, they were. Mm. But Ter Terence Stamp's character was actually younger than a lot of them. Yeah, he was about, I think he was 24 when he ultimately met his maker. Yeah. Yeah, he'd, he'd made it over from England, obviously, to try and make his fortune rearing beef. And then met his end uh, very soon after, which I mean, it could be that they're, they're trying to reflect that in, in the fact that he, he goes down fairly quickly in the film, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's—I think it was what twenty twenty-five minutes. Yeah, if that. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Terence Stamp was so good at playing that sort of slightly older, very dapper English guy. I mean, he was such a, a legend in the English cinema in the sixties, and he still looked even in the the old west. You know, his hats and everything was actually pristine. And, you know, having these six young guys staying in his house, you know, and, and it was kind of that bettering, betterment thing about teaching him to read and write. And, you know, obviously they were helping him out on on his ranch and everything. But the fact that he gets killed, there's no spoiler there, you know, <laughs> gives them all 
that emphasis on initially justice and uh, how one person's justice turns into revenge quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that, I mean, he, he definitely has a, a real gravitas, that this character, as you say, even though he's only in it a relatively short amount of time. And obviously, there's the, the scenes where he's, he's trying to teach them the correct way to speak, table manners, um, and how to read, most importantly. And, you know, ultimately, his death is, is something that, that makes um, kind of men, really, certainly out of Doc, um, Kiefer Sutherland's character, and, and you know, more centrally, um, Billy the Kid, who's Emilio Estevez. That's so jolly funny, Master Stephen. That's no proper table manners. <coughs> and a wheel with hogs. <coughs> Congratulations, Charles. You and Stephen will be doing the dirty crockery alone this evening. It's funny, um, you know, coming back... I mean, this is... Around, you know, I'm, I'm not saying exactly what episode number this is going to be, but you know, we're in the sort of late 40s, and mm. this is the first time that a lot of these guys have popped up. And part of it is, you know, maybe their their careers flourished a little bit later. And Charlie mm. Sheen, you know, as far as I can remember, only really popped up in that cameo at the end of Ferris Bueller. But this is, you've got Charlie Sheen, and Emilio Estevez, who are sort of the son of acting royalty, and. Yeah. So, so is Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, of course. And even when, I suppose it would have been maybe sort of 2006, 2007, and I was getting really into 24, yeah. and Kiefer Sutherland was huge, and everything was about Jack Bauer, and I mean, he just probably the ultimate man crush for me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, we all went there. Jack Bauer, everything. Uh, what would Jack Bauer do? But of course, coming back to this, it's it's weird because, you know, he's this younger guy who you're still expecting him to, to grab a young Chinese girl and demand to know where the bomb is and Tell me where the bomb is I mean, tell me where the bomb is. Like tell me where the bomb is. You're gonna tell me where the bomb is. Tell me where the bomb is. Tell me where the bomb is. Where is the bomb? Tell me where the bomb is Well he does he does grab a young Chinese girl uh in, or he certainly attempts to in this film, doesn't he? But with with not much luck unfortunately for him. His courtship style was um scuppered by the villain of the piece and yeah. a rather disturbing story about how this Chinese girl came to be his um well, I suppose she refers to him as a guardian yes which I think is a euphemism isn't it because Alex McSween who's the lawyer um in the in the film who's, who's not in it too much either I wouldn't say let it slip but he he, he tells Doc that she was uh, acquired um, because uh, Murphy's uh, did his shirt get ruined or something at the laundrette? Yeah, uh, he goes. Well, I'll I'll just have your daughter instead. Which uh, I suppose is there. That story's there just to kind of uh, build his character up a little bit more and just show you what a nasty piece of work he really is. Because there's a love interest, Yen Yen's son is hardly in it. But yeah, she, she's she's again a, a, a quite a, a brief character. I mean, I, and again, there's maybe a, a guilty thing on, on my part that, um, you know, a lot of these films are the first time I'd really seen a, a lot of, well, certainly the films and also the, the actors. And Jack Palance played Murphy, the, the main villain. Yeah. And and yet, to be honest, and, you know, it says a lot about me. I'd only really ever seen him in Batman and City Slickers as well as this. Yeah. And <laughs> kind of played the same character, really, didn't he? He did. Uh, to be honest with you, I I I'd heard his name and I knew his face as soon as I as I rewatched this uh, recently. I couldn't place where I'd seen him before. I just knew him as I just knew him as this character. <laughs> and I don't just mean I remember him from this film. It's just wherever I'd seen him, he's been the same thing. Hasn't he? <laughs> but he's very menacing in this. I mean, he's doesn't have a huge amount of screen time, I suppose. Bear in mind when John Tunstall dies, they are initially deputised in order to bring his killers to justice. But, you know, Murphy, he is the the big boss, but you don't see him on screen. There's very little between the beginning and the end where the guys or Regulators. Regulators! I did like one thing that um, as part of their sort of, I suppose, education and what they do is when he turns up and says, right... Let's dance. You know, they go off to the... It turned out to be the, the New Year's Eve celebrations. Yes. And again, that was like a almost a, a flash forward to Back to the Future 3. And the, the dance there with everyone in sort of smart hats. Yeah, and there's, uh, there's some um, important things happen at, at that party. Doc meets uh, Jensen, and, um, which, which starts that particular relationship. 
Charlie's introduced because he, he gets involved in a little bit of a fight. And, of course, Billy meets uh, Pat Garrett, which is very significant in the in the whole Billy the Kid story, isn't it? Pat Garrett's sort of pops up a couple of times throughout the film, and yet it's I suppose it's explored further in the sequel, yeah. which, I, I don't know, I mean, it's a 90s film and it's full of Bon Jovi. It's probably the the, an, <laughs> the ante of everything that I do, whether it will come up in the future. But, um, you know, but he, he was played by John Wayne's son, which I found yes. in the trivia. That was very random. Well, probably not. Well, probably not random, but yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think he's got, what, maybe he's got two or three scenes in it, maybe only two. Yeah. Uh, there's this scene where he... He meets Billy, and Billy's um, incredibly impressed by the fact he's just met Pat Garrett, which is kind of ironic because obviously that's how he meets his end. And he he walks off and speaks to I forget who he goes to speak to now. I don't think it was Doc because he's dancing at the time. Mm. It might have been Charlie, and he goes off to speak to him and says, "You know, I'd I'd like to be as big as him one day, yeah, bigger." Yeah, there's some clever stuff in this. I mean, you can you know argue it's just you know a rip roaring. 80s version of, of of a western, but you know there's some subtleties in this that are that are really really interesting. The benefits of history is you're able to take real people and real stories, and there is a bit of creative license to you know slightly bend the truth a little bit to fit the story. Mm. Um, but of course, you know most people will have heard of Billy the Kid, and Emilio Estevez played him quite. It's very sort of up and down performance in a way. He was so manic in some of the scenes really quite electric if that's what Billy the Kid was like in real life you know you can understand why he became such this sort of legend I, I was reading a little bit about him um, today and there was a, a quote that was attributed to him which was where he said you know I, I don't see why life should be so down so maybe they were trying to or, or Estevez was trying to, to bring that through in the fact that he was um, you know, he was laughing a lot about a lot of things that were quite sick, really. You know, there's, there's all the way through it when he's confronted with with real danger and the you know, material risk of, of dying horribly. He seems to be laughing in the face of it. And, you know, he was a drifter, of course, and he was quite quiet and quite shy and and, you know, massively reckless. I mean, earlier on in the film. When he when he uh, he's given his, his his jobs to do by by Tunstall, he gets frustrated by the pig and pulls, pulls the gun on the pig, <laughs> which is just I, I really I really like that. In fact, in fact, it, that kind of sets the scene for the whole film because the amount of times that guns are drawn for no real reason, hmm. it, I'm surprised that the, the the amount of you know the death toll wasn't higher just by accident. You know, the, the the pig has a gun pulled on it, for a thing. Um, and when you know at the same party, when when Doc finishes dancing with with Yen's son, you know his friend Alex McSween taps him on the shoulder, and his first reaction is to pull out a revolver and shove it in his wife's face. Yeah, which is um, to say they're jumpy is uh, an understatement, really, isn't it? I suppose in those days it was um, probably don't expect to live long. Maybe their life expectancy was probably around their age anyway. Yeah, possibly. But you know, can you imagine that if that had gone wrong in that you know in, in that scene, you know, <laughs> Alex's wife gets shot just because he tapped him on the shoulder. You know, that would have you know obviously would have made for a bit of a poor film. Um, but yeah, no, they, they do that all the time, all the way through. You, you see them just they their guns out, just you know, over over prayers at dinner. You know, all the way through. Really. <laughs> it's funny. We, I mean, we were talking just before we started recording about um, how I took my kids to see Peppa Pig at the weekend. And to be honest, I'd have quite frankly pulled a gun on her had the had that option been available. But I think Kingston Odium were quite strict on bringing weapons into the cinema. So, yeah, do they check that kind of thing over there? <clears throat> oh yeah, I think they knew that it'd be a load of frustrated parents and hyperactive <laughs> hyperactive two year olds so. firing at the screen. Yeah. <laughs> Howdy, everyone. Welcome to my cowboy camp. Yeehaw! It's a tent. It's a cowboy camp where cowboys sleep at night time. Are you going to sleep here in the night? <laughs> um, no. That might be a bit scary, but we can pretend it's night time. They're all singing um, Old Lang Syne as they head off after this dance, and this is where John Tunstall is. Well, he's executed, really, in very cold blood. Mm. He's had this dispute with Murphy about coming in and either it's sort of stealing his goods in transit and basically Murphy's trying to become the... or trying to stake his claim as the sort of the main man 
of yeah. the local town. And there's one particular scene earlier on when the scene is set around the difference between them and how Tunstall is trying to do things properly and how he came over from England. And there is, I suppose this would probably be more... I expect if this film was made more now, you'd hear this a lot, where there were jokes or comments made about Tunstall having young men staying in his house. Yes. Which, it was one comment that didn't really get pushed any further, and it it didn't need to, but I think in in certain hands that would have been perhaps milked to death. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that... I I mean, whether it would be used now, but I I don't know, but... um, you know, I take your point, but I think that you know they were just using that, uh, or the director was using that just to further cement what a what a real bad lad mm. um, Murphy was, and possibly to make up for his god awful Irish accent <laughs> <laughs> that he employed. I mean, he was he's probably the least intimidating person in the world when he when he you know he he talks like a, a stereotypical you know leprechaun. <laughs> uh, really, he's just a menacing leprechaun when he when he makes his threats uh, to to John uh, at the beginning. But John dies horribly, you know, he's left to die as the guys are chased. There's, there's a large gang of Murphy's men who chase him off into the into the trees. But he gets buried in the town, and this is where Alex, the lawyer, is trying to persuade the judge or the justice of the peace to deputise people to bring these guys to justice in order to have some level of law because the implication is that there's so much corruption going on and that everyone's involved everyone gets a cut yeah that this really is pissing into the wind you know you know is there anyone left who can restore order and in the end it's these six boys get deputized and you know initially most of them and bear in mind the supposedly the sensible one who stood up when Tunstall died was was Dick of Charlie Sheen Yes. It's very straight-laced, you know, reads the passages from the Bible. It's very, you know, not not at all what you'd expect Charlie Sheen to be, but you know, it's very down the middle. And, of course, it's him and Billy who have the kind of sort of head-to-heads throughout until, um, well, yeah, Dick meets his. His untimely end. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he does. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that he does play it very, very straight. Or, or certainly the characters is is written to be that way. Mm. And again, uh, I mean, the film, this film does, and pardon the pun, gallop along quite, <laughs> quite, uh, quite a pace, doesn't it? And um, you know, it's not long before before um, Dick is, is is written out of it. But yeah, even even in, in at that point, he's still pretty emotionless. Yeah. I mean, he's the one that reads the, the passage as he's being lowered into the ground and being buried. Now, one thing I, I was going to mention, and, and this is, you know, I suppose it says a lot about the film, you know, in Westerns, people die, a lot of people die, and, and this film isn't, isn't any different. But if you came to this choosing a film in the video shop, say your, your lines of VHS and Betamax tapes, and you saw this on the shelf next to Young Guns 2, so imagine we're, I suppose, 90, that came out in 92. So 93, 94, you're in a video shop. You can look at the two films side by side, the, the video covers. It's probably safe to say you can look at the cover of Young Guns 2 and work out which character dies in Young Guns. You look at the video for, um, for Young Guns 2, you've got Charlie Sheen dead and the two guys who aren't quite as famous maybe. Dermot Mulroney, who had the very good name of Dirty Steve. Dirty Steve, that was a great name. We've all we've all known a Dirty Steve, I'd like to think. <laughs> yeah, Dirty Steve or Dirty Clive or something like that. It's just fantastic. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, Charlie, who, um, yeah, un- unfortunately he didn't make it at the end either. But, um, yeah, you can look at... And then the, the poster for Young Guns too, it's a bit, a bit more low-key. You've got Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips and Christian Slater. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten... Well, I can't. I can't remember much about England's two other than you know, Bon Jovi's chaps, um, <laughs> but uh, which sticks in my mind. I can't get rid of that. So, and I've forgotten that Christian Slater. Sorry, I'd, I'd forgotten that Christian Slater was even in it. I'm wearing a whole bunch of necklaces, and I don't know what's on my shirt. I got something hanging on my belt, like maybe my keys. My shirt is tucked into my pants. Man, I don't know, but I I, I needed a lot of help there. So the regulators, their first mission is to accost Henry Hill. Uh, immediately you kind of think of fellas there, but um, he's a yes. ha- hard-drinking, oh, he's a very hairy, disgusting man 
sits in a very ramshackle bar. They've got a warrant, and Billy the Kid, and this is where he sort of immediately shows that he's perhaps not built for law enforcement. Very cunning, though. He decides not to take him on in the bar, but um, overhears that he needs a piss and goes and hides in the gents. Yeah, he does. But he's ordered uh, down there by uh, by Dick as well, which 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 happens a few times. Um, but it seems that Billy has no problem with uh, walking into any kind of danger, does he? So yeah, he goes into the bar. Um, strangely, though, he doesn't. He forgets that he's got his uh, his deputy badge on, so mm. he covers that up. And then yeah, hears that uh, Henry needs to uh, go and take a leak, and then uh, and then follows him out into the toilet then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> I did like the fact, though, that once he'd shot him, he shoved the warrant in his mouth and said, eh, you're under arrest. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that, was, that was pretty good. I wonder if that one would translate into uh, <laughs> modern law enforcement. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I, I, you can imagine him <laughs> going, uh, reading from his pocketbook in front of the judge. <laughs> and then I shot him in the chest, <laughs> jumped out the window. <laughs> and at that point, I informed him he's under arrest. So. <laughs> As he was being put in a body bag. Yeah. It was that fashion policing, I think you could say. I suppose Robert Peel would be proud. <laughs> so we have another scene where there's a confrontation and um, one character we didn't mention and uh, probably oversight on my part was um, McCloskey who after Billy had been taken in and this was in the aftermath of um, Tunstall's meeting with Murphy he came to Tunstall and said oh I'm looking for somewhere to live I used to work for Murphy but he got rid of me now of course McCloskey knows the guys that they're all after and this is clearly a sort of on a spy in the in the midst but billy sees a sort of look between mccloskey and one of the arab guys yeah pretty good sight to see that but um did, did you see it because i i, I had to rewind it a few it. times and i was just going <laughs> i don't know what he saw i had to rewind it and i i, I didn't even see, I, I saw a look which i suppose if you're as wired as billy the kid might have been then perhaps you would see something in that yeah i just saw one person looking at another yeah so McCluskey it, it basically happens when McCluskey says I don't think we should go that way we should go another way into Lincoln and then that that's enough for Billy that's he's not he's he's now he's now morphed into like a western dread isn't he he's, <laughs> he's not he's now moved on from just being a law enforcement officer to now actually being the the, the judge and jury and decides no nope, that that look that's enough for me that's yeah. all the evidence I need I've got you banged to rights. I suppose this is part of what what Dick gets so upset about is the fact that he, being, I suppose, the straight man, you know, he's a deputy, he has a job, is bringing people to justice, he has warrants. It's about getting justice for John Tunstall. Yeah. Whereas in Billy's eyes, and, you know, this obviously comes back and a little bit later on, but, you know, bear in mind, he didn't know John for that long the time isn't explored and we don't know how long he'd been in john's i don't know care ward whatever um but you know he clearly cares enough to take revenge um and when he shoots mccloskey one bloody hell that was a a mess he made and put he put half of mccloskey's face on Kiefer sutherland he did he did and i think there's there's a a bit that i think this is a part that's quite easily overlooked because i think this is where doc's character starts to change massively so he's gone from being this kind of wishy-washy poet um i want to be a gentleman um and it's clear that he's possibly john tunstall's favorite at the beginning Hmm. to having this really horrible thing happen in front of him and and seeing this this brutality dished out by by billy and as you said you know he ends up having uh, someone who who he trusted uh, having their brains emptied onto his face, um, and then and, you know and, and that he changes from there. You can, you, I mean, he walks around with the blood on his face for 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 quite a few minutes after that, doesn't he? And I, I think it's uh, it starts the change in him. Yeah, some sort of post traumatic stress, really. Is almost yeah. like a shell shock, really. But um, but I mean, after this, you know, we, we've had we've had this sort of very key scene where Billy shot McCloskey and. Chavez, Lou Diamond Phillips, who I, it's hard to describe. I suppose the one of the pioneers of straight-to-video movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he he's a he's a Native American who basically spends most of the film getting insulted for being Mexican. 
Yes. Um, and decides to do a spirit intervention for the guys, or for most of them anyway, with um, peyote, which uh, is basically yes. a big old fucking piss up. Yeah, it's a it's a very very strong hallucinogen, and it's used mm. in um, uh, shamanic ceremonies in uh, in North America. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as any any law enforcement official will tell you, I mean, when when you run out of ideas, you need to get on the acid, and it's the only way that's going to you know help solve these problems. I think. I think if only Sherlock Holmes had done that instead of his pipe and everything else, you know, the the world yeah, would be a safer place. I mean, do we know what was in that pipe? Well, exactly. I mean, probably be cracked now. <laughs> well, well, I suppose Sherlock Holmes is now a, it's a Guy Ritchie thing, isn't it? So, um, yeah. yeah, who knows? I think they're making another one of those. I heard. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I didn't think Robert Downey Jr. would be short of money, but so he, um, so Chavez, he gets the old war paint on, and this is where the guys have very different trips. <laughs> um, now. Doc, as you mentioned, you know he's he's dabbled in poetry and everything else. Yet he still is kind of a cross between a beatnik and one of those dickheads you see at a music festival who sits with a guitar. He's yes. um, and then is it Dirty Steve starts shooting at stuff and. But Dirty uh, Steve has an encounter with a giant chicken. Chicken, yeah. Um, and and says, I mean, it's a funny joke. Did you see the size of that chicken? Um, <laughs> but they really hammer it home that Dirty Steve's having a really bad trip <laughs> by saying it three times. Whereas, yeah, so yeah, so Chavez, you know, he's. He, this is what's interesting about this because uh, I've seen not firsthand, but I've seen a documentary on on on, on Native American rituals like this across mm. the Americas, and Chavez, being the, the shaman in this, is supposed to guide his colleagues through this quite terrifying spiritual experience. But he basically dresses up like he's out of kiss, <laughs> get, gets the acid down his neck, goes off onto the side of a mountain, and starts you know getting getting his trip on. And leaves everybody else to deal with it. Poor old Steve's dealing with his massive chicken. Doc, his voice drops about three octaves, and he's got <laughs> flowers and butterflies. And Billy the Kid turns into a Morris dancer. Yeah, just some, it, some pretty, pretty flowers in his hat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a real comical scene, isn't it? Um, and I don't think it really adds anything to the film whatsoever, um, other than you know a bit of a light-hearted, um, drug-fueled fun. I think all the 80s films need something like that, though. Even 1880s films. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's what they're all missing. All of them. Yeah. We need more peyote. So the next after they've had their was it spirit adventure, something like that, they ride off and they're preparing their next course of action. They need to decide which route they're going to take. Buckshot Roberts appears, who's one of the most wanted people because they're um in the area i mean they're, they're in new mexico so yeah. i suppose in the state um they have a warrant for him but he knows that there's a bounty on them for murphy yes so it's a very strange scene because this guy he looks like an overweight middle-aged guy that you know you or i might see in a pub now and just think oh yeah here we go chelsea fan yeah looks like he's been playing darts all day <laughs> And yet these six young guys fronts up to him and he takes out Dick. There's a lot of shooting going on. He shoots Doc, Doc and Dick, and eventually retreats into a toilet or an outhouse. And he causes a lot of mayhem for one guy against six. Yeah, with no cover at all. No. So he just, he opens up, says, let's dance. And just starts firing at six heavily armed young men, and uh, and then yeah, it, it retreats into the toilet. Dick sends in Billy, doesn't he? Because he thinks, yeah, does, oh, yeah, yeah I, this worked once. Let's just send him in. Um, and I think even Billy's not uh, not stupid enough to try and charge this madman down um, as he's locked in the toilet. And then of course Dick decides, you know, as the leader of the group, I better go and do something about this. And as he stands up, he says, cover me. Now, I've not been in the military, but in all of the stuff I've seen, when someone says cover me, it means provide covering fire. Yeah. No one fires anything. Poor old Dick goes up, quite literally, with his dick in his hands. Um, <laughs> a giant piece of ordnance comes out of the, of, the, of the toilet, and by that I mean a gun, and um, and then takes poor Dick out. And he's, you know, he's blasted to death, isn't he? Yeah. You'd think five guys... 
I mean, it's difficult, but Five Guys might have seen the long barrel coming out between the wood. And it was sad because, you know, this is Dick, who was the kind of the sane one, the steady one. You know, he passed on the peyote and yes. he meets us his end and he's just left there when the others retreat we don't actually see Roberts dying I mean for the amount of gunfire that eventually went in on the outhouse you'd assume but all the others sort of leg it and um, and Dick's just laid there to die in the yard I, I think he was probably pretty dead I mean he, he got a yeah. couple of couple of shots to the chest and yeah and again uh, as I mentioned earlier Doc's transition from being a, a, a poet to a gun-toting outlaw is almost complete in this scene as well because at the end of it he's longingly looking back at Dick he's dead in the dirt the the director leaves that hanging for a little bit as well as though you know he's trying to uh, tell Dick's story just as much sorry Doc's story just as much as uh, as Billy's there's too many Dicks and Docs <laughs> I guess that's the part is that where again not knowing exactly the backstory and you know I guess maybe again these days this might be a prequel but we know that there was the bond and with Tunstall dying and Dick dying, you know, everything that Doc knew is dead, you know, and, and it's kind of the, the way of the West, really. But I suppose there's only so much poetry can do. Yeah, and you see him more and more after after this start to side with Billy and kind of fall, fall mm. in behind him. Um, and, you know, he doesn't really question him much after this, does he? No. But after this is the part where, you know, Chavez has his speech about what happened to his family that why how he came into the care of Tunstall and why he's so bitter and what his beef is with Murphy yeah. you know he's not just a guy who's down on his luck he's not been taken in being homeless you know this guy being native american you know this is i mean the, the way he described the death of his people and his family and the systematic abuse of those people yeah again it, it takes a slight turn you know from just 10 15 minutes ago they were all high and acid and he's now talking about how his was his mother was gutted from privates to neck and Jesus. yeah yeah it's it could have been i mean it does take a turn you're right and it, and it, it sours the tone doesn't it but i i think with a better actor that could have really had some some real gravity to it but i i I just really think that Lou Diamond Phillips just he just didn't it wasn't very convincing for me. And he and he's you know, he screws his face up at the end as if to say, Look, if you're not convinced, look look how angry I am. I'm very, very angry. Look, my nose is curled up and everything. So it, it would yeah. I mean it was the I think the dialogue in it is really, really good. But I, mm. I just think that, you know, as you said, Mr. Straight to video um <laughs> could have you know, maybe someone else could have had that scene, I don't know. No, it's a shame. I think um I, I don't know, I haven't explored his backstory. Like Lou Diamond Phillips was he sort of part of that group of guys, I don't know, but um I think he was a real character as well, but I, I, I didn't read up on, on, on you know, what his background was. Um, but, you know. I, I'm not going to insult the guy who was um, the lead in the straight-to-video Cop and a Half 2. Well, no, who would dare do that? No, I mean, that that ranks among the greats as... Um, have you seen um, There's a Kindergarten Cop 2? <laughs> Is there really? With uh, Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> no, really? Came out a couple of years ago. Oh, dear. Dolph Lundgren is Kindergarten Cop 2. This machine owes me Twix bar. He's an undercover FBI agent looking for stolen data. How close are you to making a breakthrough? They're definitely warming up to me. And one of these kids holds the key. They are totally useless for reliable information. And this is where there's a lot of backwards and forwards between... Lincoln, where the the whole sort of town is, and where these guys are sort of holed up, because we're starting to hear stories that various bounty hunters are after them, the law are after them, yeah. the army at one point as well, because and and Billy's antics are getting reported on with sort of greater colour, yeah. early tabloid news. He's becoming he famous, isn't he? Really, and I think yeah, yeah, and that's what he wants yeah. exactly. There was a part. It might be a little bit later on where they they take the photograph of him, and the way the photograph comes out is he looks like he's left-handed. And there was a mention in the paper that hey, I'm not a lefty. Yeah. And I think one of the the guys who comes to kill him later on actually describes him as left-handed. Yes, that's which right. Which I, yeah, I suppose is 
I suppose a handy little disguise really but uh, I, I'm left handed and as far as I'm aware no one comes to kill me You know, not yet anyway <laughs> not that I'm aware of <laughs> Billy very openly goes up and kills the sheriff yes which <laughs> very brazen in in the middle of the town in broad daylight yeah that, I mean that's yeah he, he dances up behind them doesn't he while they're, <laughs> they're, they're walking down the street probably off to go and get a cup of tea or whatever yeah. policemen do on the days off I don't know uh, taps the gun no, th- he throws the hat the, his hat over the sheriff's colleague's head doesn't he he mm. turns around and just shoots him in the chest so one thing that strikes me about these gang of regulators is that they're not very stealthy at all are they this happens you can imagine he's when you first watch the scene you think right, Billy's going to go in there he's going to assassinate the guy get out and it's done but he doesn't he starts messing around with his hat dances around the place um, a big gunfight ensues in the street where no one's taking cover behind anything other than their you know their waistcoats and uh, ultimately the, the sheriff finds himself on his back unarmed and, and Billy stands over him and kills him in cold blood saying reap the whirlwind Brady yeah. which is just horrible really <laughs> <laughs> now they again loitering around Charlie and I, I recognise him as he was the guy in Back to the Future had the 3D glasses one of Biff's goons really? yeah good knowledge good well. knowledge Good knowledge, Google. <laughs> <laughs> he goes off to get a, uh, to see a prostitute, although because you know he's a very he's a very tender guy, he just wants to be he-, he just wants to hold her or be held. That's right. Yeah. Of course, that the price is the same. Now, one one thing from a previous episode, she was the or the actress who played the the prostitute was in Cocktail. She was the woman that Tom Cruise, or the supposedly older woman that Tom Cruise shacked up with for a while. The rich lady. Yes, oh, that was right. her. Now, I say older woman because, I mean, I think this came out the same year as Cocktail. She was only 33, which obviously to, to, to us is, is a very young age. Yes. Um, and bear in mind, one of the lines I remember her saying in Cocktail was to Tom Cruise saying, what you've given me, I ain't got no cure for, which mm, I suppose... In the 80s, yeah. yeah. In, and in, in her line of work, you know, it's an <laughs> occupational hazard. I suppose so. And this is, um, and while the other guys are in the bar, while he's off getting his hugs, this is where Billy taunts the the bounty hunter who's come to kill him. Yeah. And this is quite an an elaborate thing, really. I mean, Billy clearly loves the chase, the piss taking. It's you know he's winding this guy up a treat. Yeah. You know, if you see him, let me know. And he looks in the mirror, go, oh, I can see him. And yeah. it, but not after emptying the bullets out of his gun. What's interesting about this scene is this, well, according to, you know, the folklore around Billy the Kid is this actually happened. Joe Grant, the, the guy from, from, from Texas who's uh, busy uh, speaking so loudly that the whole bar can hear how wonderful he thinks he is, has got this beautifully uh, crafted kind of ivory-handled pistol, hasn't he? And uh, mm. Billy dances up to him and says, I really admire, you know, your gun. I, it, that's the gun that's going to kill Billy the Kid. Uh, which apparently was 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 uh, was what actually happened, um, and as he takes the gun off him, uh, handed the gun rather, he you know he plays around with it a bit and, and obviously relieves it of its, uh, of its bullets and then hands the gun back to him, not before taunting him and pretending to, to point it at him. Then, as you say, he he says, you know, that's, I can see Billy the Kid there; he is in front of me, and and the guy starts getting more and more wound up, doesn't he? And uh, you know, he wants to, you know, he says, I'm going to. I don't have to take down your britches and spank them <laughs> in front of all these girls. At which point, Billy just pulls out a gun and, and just kills him, um, which uh, was the end of his fun. But uh, you know, I, I think that's probably too fantastical of a thing to have actually happened. You know, to be able to you know unload a gun, I think someone would would have, would have spotted that. But it makes makes a good story. Yeah, sure, you are a testy little cuss. Whether it's true or not, I suppose it adds to the character of Billy the Kid being this sort of extroverted, eccentric nutcase who's quite yeah. happily facing up to his own potential death. But also, again, the, the, I suppose the, the arrogance of people looking down on, on their youngers. 
I guess the whole young guns thing is maybe it is a case of people don't take them seriously because they're supposedly young. Yeah, possibly, possibly. And Billy does, uh, you know, just going to back to what you said about um, uh, about his uh, his kind of arrogance, if you like, because after that he turns to Doc, doesn't he, and says, how many is that? Yeah. 20, 25? And he goes, no, it's like six. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, they're they're all the whole the rest of the group are, are clearly taken taken aback about what's just happened. You know, they don't they're not they're not smiling and you know slapping on the back saying you know well done that was a good old jape. You know, they're all pretty disturbed by what they've just seen. Yeah, uh, which is which is probably less to do with you know the murdering of this guy and more to do with you know as you say the the his you know how brazen he was where he just kind of danced up to him and, and you know took the pace and then killed him. <laughs> I suppose the fact as well that his behaviour impacts on them. So it's like the Begbie thing in train spotting. Yeah, it's exactly what yeah, there's a bit of Begbie about that. <laughs> Begbie the kid. <laughs> <laughs> now, Charlie meets a woman and gets married to and I wrote, Is she a child? I didn't get how old she was. Well, I mean, was she I mean yeah, she or... was she was young because they arrive at the frontier town, don't they? Yeah. And um on the border with 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 Mexico, um, you know, it seems that his courtship is is even worse than Doc's because he he just puts a cord around her, and next thing you know, he's getting married. Who knew that would work? So you know, it's a bit cold. Put this on, and you know, we might as well get it on. I suppose it's like um, the Tinder of 150 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Swipe left. <laughs> yeah, but they they get married, and this is where Pat Garrett reappears, and he tells. Billy, that the army are after him, and that the um, that Alex, the the lawyer, is being targeted, and that this is what takes them back to Lincoln in order to kind of to look after him. Billy does say to Pat, he says, "Are you still my friend?" Yes, as he turns his back on him. Yeah, uh, which I think is is quite uh, key as well because uh, you know the story goes that the the Pat Garrett shot him in the back when he was unarmed, mm. ultimately. But you do see when when Billy turns his back on him and says, "Are you my friend?" You see the silhouette of Pat Garrett, and you see him kind of pull his overcoat back. You you assume to expose his gun, so maybe he was tempted at that point because he he'd, he'd yet to be appointed, didn't he? That that's the yeah. conversation they have. I'm running for sheriff. I'm not the law yet. He says to him. Yeah. But he he clearly was tempted to think, well, maybe I could start a few weeks early and just get this job done, and I can have the summer off. Yeah, so that's explored in, in Young Guns too, and again mentioned there. So they've gone back to Lincoln. They've managed to convince Charlie that to leave his wife at the wedding, which is um, sort of Jeremy Kyle-esque. They just get married. <laughs> I'm leaving you to go back and my mates and go and kill a load of people. Yeah, and he says it's a, it's a real pain having pals, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> and And this is when the film becomes a siege they go back to Alex and the wife they barricade themselves in the house because the law are there all the bounty hunters are there so John Kenny, Johnny Crawford John Kenny, they're all there Murphy turns up, the army turn up all to kill these guys and the lawyer I suppose it's heavy handed but that, those were the times yeah, it was, and and the, you know, the, you can tell they were going over the top because even when the when the the army arrived, they were telling the I don't know the senior officer that mm. there were forty or fifty of them in there, yeah. uh, when clearly there was just a handful in there. So I think that you know the idea was to, um, I think as Alex said at the beginning of the scene, it's going to be a massacre. Um, not that it seemed to get to Billy at all. No, he, he seemed to enjoy it. I mean, the I suppose the the shouting off through the window and. A proper crack shot. I see you got Charlie Crawford down there with you. Yeah, we got a whole lot of... Oh, my God. Damn. Hey, Peppin. Charlie Crawford ain't with you anymore. <laughs> I mean, this guy just had his head blown off. And he's, there, he's there to uphold the law. But it is, it is quite a funny movement, if I'm honest. <laughs> and they managed to see off sort of the, the afternoon and evening and then the next morning yeah, the, the army have turned up. One thing I did see was apparently one of the, the soldiers was Tom Cruise. No, really? Yeah, he was, apparently he was on set and they sort of stuck him in a soldier's costume and I suppose 88 Tom Cruise was too busy. With, it wasn't busy enough with cocktail to get involved yeah. in this as well. I wonder if he did his own stunts. <laughs> Murphy turns up because his um the girl who's in love with Doc 
has run in to the house and Murphy screaming burn the house down because of course he's it's all his fault at the end of the day yeah yeah no no subtlety in his schemes no not at all and he even says to the uh, to the officer the in the army doesn't he see your political career will be over before it starts <laughs> if you don't follow our suggestions and he says you know what do you suggest well I suggest you burn down the house <laughs> that's my suggestion and uh, yeah so clearly the officer's got one eye on, on a political office and, and does exactly what he's told I suppose the, the equivalent now of like I pay your wages or <laughs> I know the commissioner yes yeah, yeah. I'll have your yeah. badge it's exactly what it is yeah. <laughs> they managed to get the wife to leave the house um, with the best crockery yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to get her out of the, of the loft weren't they? they were in the loft or whatever yeah. it is mezzanine level or whatever you would call it and she's like no I, want, I, I need my plates and while there's bullets just ricocheting around the place and it's on fire that really doesn't do a lot for um, for equality uh, that scene but then again it was the 80s wasn't it yeah. I, I need my heirlooms <laughs> but even outside when she's 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 arguing with the uh, with the the, the army officer um, she's still clutching this giant plate. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I haven't got time to do with your complaints. Get over there and take your plates with you, love. <laughs> it's, really. See, they'd be a handy weapon. I'm surprised she didn't use one of them to hit him with. Yeah, she could have, yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, things are quite tense. Um, there's a lot of fire and smoke in the house. There's a, a chest, a large chest is thrown out. Yeah, it's uh, Billy hiding in this chest. Bert's out. You know, he's... I didn't even bother counting how many people are outside with guns and he's got his two revolvers yeah i mean there's a there's an entire platoon of 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 soldiers out there he jumps out in a box clearly unhurt or not even not even slightly dizzy uh, from being thrown out of of a top floor window in a box (laughs) and comes out facing the right way I mean, that box could have been upside down, and then yeah. you would have seen it would have been like an Austin Powers trying to do that three-point turn, <laughs> watching Billy the Kid get out of this box. Luckily, that didn't happen, and he's able to come out fresh as a daisy um, with his uh, with these two revolvers and fires far more than the number of bullets that were in those two guns <laughs> at, at the combined um, military force in front of him, and gets away with well, only a slight scratch, doesn't he? Yeah, he gets shot in the in the shoulder. Yeah, and then the rest of the guys burst out from the side of the house. Um, Charlie takes a few bullets in a sort of one-on-one gunfight with John Kenny. One he does. Once he manages to get the last one in, Chavez gets shot. Doc gets shot, and then Steve gets sorry, Dirty Steve. Give him his full name. Dirty Steve. He gets shot and. Um, he dies with his disgusting teeth. And he does, but he doesn't drop his chewing tobacco, does he? Because <laughs> no. that's one thing throughout the whole film. He's always got a gob full of tobacco, hasn't he? Yeah. And even after he's been shot to death, he's like, there's no way this leaves in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex, the lawyer, bloody hell, gets the machine gun. Well, this is after... I mean, this is, this is a, a, a scene full of very bad dying. People yeah, die. I don't mean they die in a horrible way. I mean the acting is shocking. <laughs> it's a lot of squibs. There's, it's yeah, it's terrible. I mean, there's a lot of standing there and being shot. I mean, when when Charlie goes down, he's been shot four or five times mm. in the chest, uh, and is still standing somehow, um, and still manages to get a round off and and, and takes out the, uh, the 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 justice there. The rest of them, as you say, run out of the house and, and it takes superficial wounds. And then poor old Alex, who walks out completely unarmed after the drama's over, and he's even got a white handkerchief in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the the gunner there has got his new toy, hasn't he? He's got a, yeah. a, a, a sort of a basic, or you would say, a bit, it's not that basic. It knows what it you know. It does what it does. But certain by by any other uh, any other age's standards, it's a fairly rudimentary machine gun. So the gunner just shoots him possibly twenty or thirty times uh, with his new toy, and he goes down in very slow motion. And it takes him minutes to hit the floor, doesn't it? I mean, it's, that's probably the worst of the dying scenes. There is a lot of um, slow motion in this film. Yes, <laughs> you don't see this in uh, Clint Eastwood jobs here. No, I mean I would, I would have, I'd probably hit the floor the second I saw someone with a piece of, you know, a piece of ordnance, you know, never mind a machine gun. I don't think it would take one shot to to knock me off my feet. 
But you know these guys. I suppose in those days they were built, made of, of better stuff, weren't they? They could take six or seven bits of <laughs> hurl at them at hundreds of miles an hour, and still get yeah. on with their day. Everyone's a snowflake now. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> Snowflakes can't yeah. take shot. Bloody hell! Not 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 back in our day. Oh. And then finally, Billy shoots Murphy from decent range, right between the eyes. Yeah. Now it's over. It is not before Murphy again. Uh, it, you know, keeping uh, it consistent with the the scene that's that's just passed uh, mm. takes an age to go down, despite the fact that his his brains are all over the camera lens, <laughs> um, and uh, twists around just so you can see how good the shot was that Billy planted in, in his forehead from two hundred, three hundred meters. Maybe mm. it's a, yeah, pretty good shot with a with a a, a fairly cumbersome pistol. Uh, from that distance, uh, but but he does it and carrying a gunshot injury of his own. Yes, <laughs> uh, and 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 let's not forget the box incident as well. So yes, of <laughs> course, he probably had a concussion at least. Yeah, yeah. at least, but he can still <laughs> pull off a shot like that. What a guy! Oh, hero. Reaper Murphy, you son of a bitch. <laughs> And luckily, Kiefer Sutherland and his sexy voice tell us the story about what happened afterwards. Three of the six survive. Uh, and of course, we know that because they're in the poster for Young Guns too. Yes. He does tell us about how they die, which I suppose is a spoiler for Young Guns too. Yeah. Yeah, they all go off into the sunset and uh, everyone's a winner. Yeah. Ex- so, except those who died. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're, <laughs> they're pretty far from winning. But didn't didn't the, did Chavez go off to be a fruit farmer or something? Is that what he said in it? Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> which is kind of like, oh, okay. I mean, they could have just said farmer, and that would have been quite noble. But, you know, he's just been in this massive shootout. Yeah, he went off to grow some strawberries and, you know, <laughs> tend to his flowers. Yeah, he was at one, course, with the, one with the earth. Yeah, and of course he, he gives away what happens to... To Billy, which I suppose anybody that even whether you're familiar with the history of early America, you, he's one of the names that jump out. You know, you know, obviously that he he died horribly in the end through with with Pat Garrett. But there's a there's a the, the 80s cheese isn't complete though, isn't it? Until Keith Sutherland says that that the the grave someone visited the grave and scratched in uh, the 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 word pals, yeah, <laughs> which is just lovely, isn't it? And that's that's just how it fades out with that. And we're all vomiting in the aisles. <laughs> oh, what a film. It is a, a barnstormer. I hope people, if you haven't watched this for a long time, and I mentioned it on Twitter while I was watching it, and a couple of people said, oh, I've not seen that for years. And yeah, I think it's one of those that ITV used to show sort of when they first had the rights to it quite often. But um, it seems to get missed a little bit. I mean, I, I bought it on iTunes ages ago, sort of in the hope of doing this pod. So it's nice that to actually get an excuse to do it but it, I don't know it's almost like it seems to have got overlooked by the sequel purely because of the Bon Jovi side of it yeah which is a shame <laughs> it is a shame because it's not, I mean it's it's got its faults this film it really but, but it was of its time yeah. and um, you know I, I think it's a it's a pretty good film I mean there was some I mean the 80s is, well, you probably know this better than most but the 80s has got some its fair share of shit hasn't it and, uh, <laughs> and I think it's fair to say this I, th- I think it would be unfair to say that this this could be lumped in with that because I think it's a, it's a pretty good film yeah the soundtrack's terrible yeah some of the slow-mo scenes on the on the you know in the shootouts are, are pretty cheesy but you know that that was the style of the time and um, but I think there's some with some exceptions there is some good acting in this um, and it's a good story well told I think it's like the Avengers of its day. Yes. <laughs> Bring the big guns together. I'm now tempted to watch Young Guns 2 after this conversation. It will probably spoil this whole thing for me. <laughs> we might have to. I mean, you could just put the uh, Absolute Radio on. I think they play the soundtrack of it every other day. So. Yeah, they do. Which is actually, it's not a bad tune, actually. Dean, one of the previous guests, he mentioned that Alan Silvestri did the score for Young Guns 2. I was like, yeah, it's B- B- Bon Jovi did all the other music. But apparently this one, Hans Zimmer did a score for and got rejected because apparently it was too Irish. <laughs> it was a little bit. I mean, because it, it could have done with some, some better music. I mean, at times it, 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 it borders on like Benny Hill. 
uh, <laughs> with its its choice of music. It really does. You know, it's a shame. But I suppose it, it's it's what makes it stand out. I suppose we we love it. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so that was Young Guns. Jan, now as mentioned at the top of the show, you are one of the regular panelists on the Sound of Football, and I suppose this is in a way my hat trick because now I've had all three of you on. You have, and Chris, and and Oakley as well. Yeah, you see, yes. you've, uh, you've you've done all four of us. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm pleased to be the last. I'm, I hope I was the best. <laughs> yeah, this this was young guns, you know. <laughs> so, um, again, I, when I spoke to Graham last, I mean, we, we talked about some of his other projects, but we didn't mention the Sound of Football too much. So, for those who are new to this podcast, what's the Sound of Football about? Well, the Sound of Football, this is a kind of a running joke, is a, is a football podcast. The running joke between us is that we don't really talk about football. Um, so the sound of football, it, we don't, you know, we don't necessarily think that we're going to add anything to the the, the already. The, there's there's a lot of stuff out there about what happened at the weekend, who scored this and who scored that, and it's well covered um, by some really some great uh, journalists. Uh, we try and cover uh, subjects around football, so we we talk a lot about um, the organisations that run it. We talk a lot about the laws of the game and how those are changing and how technology is uh, affecting that. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, the money that that surrounds it. So anything that's about football, apart from actual football itself, um, which means it doesn't really age too much. It's good. So what are the, whatever the topic is that's hot that week, uh, we'll talk about that. And if there isn't a hot topic, we'll we'll drag one up from somewhere. For anyone who who wants to go back, I think the archive's quite hefty. Is it three seventy ish number of episodes? Yeah, that yeah, that's done? right. Yeah, I was I was talking to Grim the other day actually, and we we are not far from uh, from four hundred. So I've oh, been man. doing it since late twenty eleven, uh, I think maybe early twenty twelve. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the show has been going in various forms for uh, for ten years. So yeah, there were there were hardly any uh, football podcasts around then. But yeah, there's, they're everywhere now. Doing it. <laughs> Even I've done an episode about football. Which one did you do? Escape to victory? No, uh, not yet. No, that's that's coming. Um, oh, right. We did um, actually with Chris did the the films of the eighty two and eighty six World Cups. Oh, that's right. Yes, I did listen to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, the the Michael Caine and, and Sean Connery ones. So. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did go through a phase of having so many football podcasts, and um, a lot of them it depends which one you listen to first. Says the same thing as sort of five of the others you've probably subscribed to as well but yeah i mean that's exactly that's exactly why we take the the, the route that we do i mean because in the morning uh, i you know my, my apple podcast app fills up with you know the five live one and the and the, the one from the guardian and the, the one that uh, james richardson does and you know you listen to one and you've you've kind of listened to a lot of them mm. when they've just run down what happened in the previous previous set of fixtures really so you know we try and stay away from that because it's well covered but say it's, I mean, I highly recommend it. I've been, I've been listening to it for since before you started. I mean, that'll be what eight, 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 nine years now, I think. Yeah. And yeah, I say if, um, I put the the links to the show notes and and that. And uh, yeah, if, if you've heard any of the the episodes with, with Graham and Terry and and Chris as well, it gives you a good idea. But um, yeah, it's a, the football podcast that's um, not football, but yeah. <laughs> As we mentioned, um, I know we've got a couple more films on the shortlist to cover. Um, I won't give them away just yet, but um, yeah, the, I think oh yeah, the two two very entertaining ones. So hopefully we'll get round to them in the near future. As per usual, I'll play out the podcast with the song that was number one in the UK at the time this film came out cinema. Now this came out in the UK on the sixth of January, nineteen eighty nine which gives you an idea that there was a Stock Aiken and Waterman influence. It was uh, Especially For You by Kylie and Jason. Wonderful. And I know you had a copy. I, I did. I did. <laughs> I, it probably exists somewhere still. It's probably in my loft. <laughs> uh, I'll have to dust my tape down at some point. And, uh, maybe, maybe we'll do a duet after this. Well, why not? Why not? <laughs> Jan, thank you very much for coming along. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. I very much enjoyed it. Oh, good. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Yes, all the best.
This podcast was brought to you by executive producers Gary West, Fergus Higginson and Keith Foster and associate producer Chris Oakley. For more information, please visit patreon.com forward slash Betamax Video Club.